to the fifth edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name is Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 22nd and 23rd of September 2020. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. As always, I'm joined on the Fire Safety Matters podcast by my colleague Mark Sennett, the CEO of Western Business Media. Good morning, Mark. Yeah, morning, Brian. Great to be back and another busy couple of weeks of news on the FSM website. And if those of you that aren't familiar with our website, you can see all the latest news on fsmatters.com. And at the start of this podcast, we always cover a couple of news stories before we introduce our main guest. So, Brian, what's the first news story you want to cover this week? Yes, Mark. I've focused on UCAS, the United Kingdom Accreditation Service. They've just announced their full support base uh, excellent don't just specify verify campaign which of course we featured quite heavily on the fire safety matters website as many of our readers will know the campaign was established to create greater awareness of third party certification in the fire safety sector itself it's vitally important for all premises management that's uh, responsible persons or duty holders to understand that quality regulation is present in the fire safety industry through UCAS accredited third party certification. Those individuals do need to specify appropriate providers. The important point to note here, I think, Mark, is that this should always be followed up by verifying the certification of those providers themselves. In itself, this is a pretty quick process, but it's a vital one. It ensures providers have been assist, assessed and deemed competent to deliver the specific service required. In our new story on the website, we've included comments from Matt Gantley, who is the CEO at UCAS, and he explained, and I quote, accredited third party certification of fire safety services is an essential element of fulfilling statutory obligations. UCAS is the only accreditation body recognised by the UK government, and BAFE has always shown great commitment to meeting this gold standard. Now, understandably, BAFE CEO Stephen Adams is delighted about this news. He's very keen to point out, in fact, that the campaign is designed to benefit all UCAS accredited third-party certification in the fire safety industry, not just BAFE. And Stephen himself is a firm believer that evidential competence is the key issue here for life safety. It must be said, Mark, at a time when many businesses are planning to go back to work, one of the first things they should be doing is reviewing their fire safety protection regimes. Yeah, 100%. This is a topic that we've covered before, as we said. In fact, we did a big interview, didn't we? In fact, you interviewed uh, Steve Adams on episode three of the podcast, and you can go back uh, in iTunes, etc., and and hear that. I think I mentioned on there that I, I sit as part of the Fire Sector Federation, and this is the key topic. Competency, third-party certification, everything that's come out of the Hackett report, the, the Grenfell inquiry, and, and, and the follow-up from the terrible Grenfell tragedy has been moving towards this point. And yeah, it's, it's great to see that this gets further backing. I think Stephen said um, it's excellent to report that UCAS is support for this campaign. And, you know, what, what it can do is it can reassure that an appropriate provider is being used for this campaign, especially at a time when a business is planning to go back to work. So what Stephen means when he says that is this whole campaign, don't just specify, verify. If you, if you use only a third party certified person to carry out fire safety work, exactly what Stephen said there, it's a real reassurance um, to anybody using people for fire safety work, they're using competent people. And I know this is a topic you're going to go into in a bit more detail with our main guest this week, Nar Rowan uh, from the ASFP. But if we move on to another news story, Brian, if you don't mind, uh, it's a topic that we have covered a bit before but it just keeps growing and growing and that's the news that the government has unveiled a one billion building safety fund for dangerous cladding removal 
I keep ramping this up. It, it keeps getting bigger and bigger. Building owners are being urged to act and put the safety of residents first as the government's £1 billion building safety fund to remove dangerous cladding has been launched by the housing secretary, Robert Jenrick. This news comes as the government's published its prospectus for the Building Safety Fund, which will meet the cost for remediation of unsafe non-ACM cladding systems on residential buildings in the private and social sector that are 18 metres and over and don't comply with the building regulations. So a bit more detail on this, Brian. This fund is predominantly targeting at supporting leaseholders in the private sector facing significant bills. However, the government is clear that for leaseholders living in buildings owned by providers in the social sector, it will provide funding to meet the providers' costs, which would otherwise have been borne by leaseholders. The government expects landlords to cover these costs without increasing rent to their tenants, which is just good news all round for tenants. The government is already providing £600 million for a replacement of ACM cladding systems. So in total, that's where I get the figure from before, in total this brings the total funding for remediation up to £1.6 billion. The government has also published an amendment to the statutory guidance for approved document B. When they come into force, these changes will ensure that sprinkler systems and consistent wayfinding signage are mandatory in all new high-rise blocks over 11 metres tall. Big news that. I mean, it's not just a big investment um, to make buildings safer from the moving of cladding and making it not be borne by tenants. But actually, that, that sprinkler news is key too. Associations like BAFSA have long battled to get suppression systems in buildings Um high-rise buildings and now it's from 11 meter blocks and over so it's, it's a big news brian all around from from suppression and from this cladding removal funds and of course you know there's also the need for consistent wayfinding signage that's now going to be in there so a lot of a lot of movement from the government there i don't know your take on it that's right mark and in fact you mentioned robert generally there the housing minister well he and mayors and local leaders have also pledged to ensure vital building safety improvements continue during the current coronavirus pandemic. Undoubtedly, this is going to help ensure that safety is prioritised for those living in high-rise buildings with unsafe cladding or there are insufficient fire safety measures. And Building Safety Minister Lauren Greenhalgh has added his views to this debate. And he's observed, and I quote, now that this additional one billion pound funding is in place, building owners must crack on with removing flammable cladding on all high-rise residential buildings that are over 18 metres in height. The government will work with the Mayor of London and our Metro Mayors as well as local councils to ensure that these vital building safety works are finally carried out and people are safe in their homes. So good news all around there. Our first guest on episode five of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Niall Rowan. Niall is CEO at the Association for Specialist Fire Protection. At the start of the week, I chatted with Niall about several key issues, among them the Fire Safety Bill, government funding for cladding renewal, third party certification and the future direction of travel when it comes to passive fire protection. First, we focus on the building regulations review. Thanks very much for joining us on this week's podcast. Uh, fire safety in the UK is, of course, regulated via government legislation. What are your views on the wide-ranging review of the building regulations? Are there any key points that stand out from your perspective? In particular, what do you think of the revisions in relation to approved document B? There is uh, a, the wide-ranging review of building regulations uh, in terms of approved document B. There, there is a five-year review um, on the content of approved document B, which goes beyond what's just been announced 
in terms of sprinklers and wayfinding signage. And that's the kind of bit that interests me um, in that they're looking at further at the role of sprinklers, smoke and toxicity, uh, means of escape from blocks and flats, compartment sizes, fire resistance period. There's kind of a whole fundamental review going on there. But that is a slightly longer term review. You know, not going to see anything out of that for a while. When this research program was announced, they looked for the easy wins and they've just implemented the easy wins, which are the, the changes that you just mentioned in, uh, in approved document B, which is the introduction of sprinklers um, below 11 metres and um, a mandatory uh, escape route visualisation. What do we think about it? We think it's fine. We've always, you know, we supported it in the response to the changes. We, we, we supported the introduction of sprinklers. You know, when you've got a large number of households in close con contact and where the fire in one can easily affect the fire in another, it's a logical step to go. But just to not to lose sight of the need for passive fire protection uh, as still as the fundamental means of protect, providing safety in terms of separation, compartmentation, etc. You know, it's not a kind of, well, we're going to bring in sprinklers so you can forget about the other stuff. Um, I, had a, I had a query recently on one of these forums and some guy, it, we brought this in, he said, oh, the fire stopping's not that good, but we've got a sprinkler system. And I said, if the boot was on the other foot, if we had a faulty sprinkler system uh, and we said, yeah, but the fire stopping and the separation is really good, would you accept that? And of course, the answer is no. I said, "Well, then that's what you need to do." But we rec, we, you know, we rec, we we welcome it. It's good. It's all good news. And continuing the legislation theme for the time being, Niall, back in March, the government announced its proposed fire safety bill. Uh, as part of this move, there are plans for a new building safety regulator. Do you welcome such a move? And if so, for what reasons? Uh, the new building safety regulator. Yeah, it's it's. Oh God, you're thinking not another regulator like a water regulator or. A, or whatever um and where does it all end but you know you do have two regulators is more sources of confusion but something had to be done in terms of the system that judith hackett recognized in her 53 recommendations and a, a fantastic diagram of, of the of the situation of building control as it is now which is you know, completely incomprehensible so and one of the ways, you know, we need a regulator with more teeth, which we don't have now, uh, and a regulator is a bit more focused. And HSE has, who is going to be the regulator? HSE, and is now the shadow regulator, HSE has proven itself to be a good regulator in the field of health and safety. Where I have some slight queries, concerns, is in the knowledge of fire and construction systems and products, where I think compared to, say, LABC and others, they would be um, they're not as well not as well versed, but I'm I'm sure they'll get the right the right influence of that. So yes, we do regulate. We're welcome it, and also what people don't forget is they're not only doing they're not only implementing a more stringent regime for buildings in scope, i.e., herbs, high-risk residential buildings, but also. They're overseeing the safety and performance of all buildings and promoting the competence of those working on all buildings. So there's more to this than meets the eye. And following on from that, when discussions focus squarely on central government funding for renewal of cladding, what do you feel should be covered by the monies allocated? Well, I mean, the obvious answer is all the cladding, the cladding and associated, um, associated issues. In some cases, 
in terms of uh, passive fire protection, if you're remediating a building uh, and passive fire protection needs updating, then that is the time to do it. Do it all together, do it in one go. Uh, how, where that money can actually be spent and what it is allowed to be spent on, I'm not so sure, but obviously there is a case for doing it. I mean, you could argue that uh, it has to be just limited to cladding. You know, we would say if, if you can do it to, to identify other deficiencies in the building, you should do so. And we've heard a good deal about the overriding importance of third-party certification on recent episodes of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. What's your own take on this, Niall? Well, third-party certification is something that the, the ASFP have been championing for over 25 years, uh, and it is a requirement for all contractors, installation contractors, that they hold third-party installation for the products that they install. So we're, we're, we're very um, supportive of this. Whether this is actually becomes mandated in the fullness of time, I'm not so sure. And there are, there is a competency steering group which is 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 looking at competency of installing contractors. And competency is something in the ASFP that we feel very strongly about. We we, you know, we feel that our members are a cut above the rest, uh, and so we have um, we have developed in conjunction with the Institution of Fire Engineers what's called a level two and level three certificates in passive fire protection. And we've had a tremendous response to people wanting to do that, especially during during the furloughing period. So, and obviously we can provide training, but there are the third party providers, uh, providers as well. The certification bodies at issue, third party certification installing contractors have also agreed to embrace the IFE qualifications. So we think that's another another plus point. And passive fire protection is what the ASFP is all about, of course. Where are we now with the dis- discipline, Nilo? Can you na- map out the likely direction of travel as we ease out of lockdown? Well, uh, you know, one of the things that the Grenfell fire did is not only did it shine the light on, on cladding, it shined the light on some deficiencies in passive fire protection, to which those of us in the fire sector said, well, we know, we, we've been saying, you know, there was a, the whole fire sector first year saying, we told you so. Um, but that's the way it is often. It has to be. Somebody has to die. Lots of people have to die before before changes are made. It's very sad, though. So um, what's the direction of travel? Well, we've got a new regulator. We've got um, a building safety bill and a fire safety bill. The fire safety bill is going to ensure that flat front doors and cladding is included in the scope of a risk assessment, although there is certainly with regard to cladding there aren't enough people out there who are qualified to do it and the practicalities to do it are going to be very difficult I don't know how we are the answer that one at the moment it's not been answered Um, in terms of passive fire protection the government is looking under the building safety regime the building safety bill to introduce a more stringent regime for what it calls safety critical products uh, where they'll use the European CPR regulations and where they are not applicable, and I won't go into that in detail in this answer, to use some form of UK conformity mark based on a similar system. All of these, both of these systems, have some element of third-party product certification. So we, with some reservations, we're generally supportive of that, and we think that that's the way forward. So, you know, it's going to get better, and, and it needed to.
So, Brian, now we obviously focus back on the last couple of news stories. And one that I want to cover is all to do with hot work. It's something I've spoken about on this podcast before. And a news story that you covered just last week on the FSM website. And for those of you, as I said before, who want to see all the latest news, just go to our website, which is fsmatters.com. So this article you wrote was saying that one-fifth of the construction industry-related fires in England are caused by hot work. And hot work is something, as I said, I've spoken about on a previous episode of the podcast. So this was when CE Safety recently submitted a Freedom of Information request to the Fire and Rescue Service. And this was in a bid to find out about the number of fires reported in the construction industry and how many were caused by hot work. In total, there were 242 fires in buildings under construction across England. And of those, 44 instances, which is 18%, were caused by hot works. The top five locations in England with the highest number of fires at construction sites between 2018 and 2019, which is what these figures are in relation to, were London with 81 instances, Devon and Somerset with 27, Dorset and Wiltshire with 24, Merseyside with 19, Lancashire with 18. The data also reveals how many of those incidents within the construction industry were caused by hot work. And that, that's what I want to focus on here. The information provided by the Fire and Rescue Services across England said that 24 instances were related to hot work. Dorset and Wiltshire witnessed the highest number of instances of fires caused by hot work on these sites under construction. And that was closely followed by seven instances from East Sussex, four in London and three in Derbyshire. Other locations either had no fires at all or them that weren't caused by by hot work. So, Brian, I don't know if you've got your thoughts on this. Well, interestingly, Mark, the CE Safety also found out the main causes of these fires were welding or cutting equipment, uh, combustible articles being too close to the heat source, or incidents involving the use of a blowtorch or some other form of industrial equipment. In total, it stated that there were four injuries reported across England. The team at Health and Safety Focused Training Specialist CE Safety actually contacted 40 fire and rescue services across England as part of this latest study. Of those, uh, 10 don't actually record information relating to the construction sector. Well, at the time of my news story, five of them are yet to respond. Yeah, it's really disappointing, and it will be for CE Safety, that that five haven't responded. And of course, you know, those that, that don't record them, that's also a frustration. But yeah, the five that didn't respond, you know, that, that that's something it's very disappointing. You'd hope they would have shared their figures. So Brian, You've got a final news story you want to cover. What was it you wanted to cover in your last news story for this episode? Yes, it's back on to the UK Fire and Rescue Services, Mark. Thousands of staff from the UK Fire and Rescue Services are continuing to support the NHS, the Ambulance Service, local authorities and other vital organisations in the fight against COVID-19. This follows on for extensive negotiations that began back in March, in fact, involving the National Fire Chiefs Council, the National Employer and indeed the Fire Brigade Union. This means COVID-19 related activities such as assisting care homes, helping with testing, uh, driving ambulances, face fitting masks for clinical staff and NHS workers, and also supporting the most vulnerable through making deliveries will continue to take place now until at least the tail end of July. Um, that date could be extended in fact further to late August if joint work on reviewing assessments is agreed upon and concluded. The discussions apparently uh, in involve reviewing the learning and experiences for the last two months. A new requests from the FBE were also brought to the table, which required additional consideration as part of the tripartite agreement. 
It was also agreed that joint work and reviewing risk assessments would be carried out with the aim of extending the agreement to the 26th of August. Now, important recent additions here, Mark, the delivery of pre-designed training packages on infection prevention and control, and also importantly, training care home staff themselves to train others according to the principle of train the trainers. Well, Brian, I can remember a time when firefighters, you know, the FBU, were, were at war with the government in terms of extended responsibilities for firefighters that have to do with emergency response, you know, on, on some emergency responders to do, or first responders, I should say, in, in terms of, you know, car accidents, etc., like that. It's really great that you can see all of the key workers, all the emergency services working closer together. You know, this is you know, a huge credit to the unions for supporting this and for firefighters for doing it. In fact, I've touched on this on one of our sister podcasts, which is the Health and Safety Matters podcast. One of the things that has certainly impressed me and, and is heartwarming to me in this time of great uncertainty for all of us and mass change, and it's very, very difficult times, there really has been a sense of unity and a real sense of love and respect towards the great work that the emergency services like like the fire and rescue service do so so they're carrying out some important work there whether it's the training uh, on assistant living and, and this is just good news all around as you said and in fact this is one of the topics we're now going to move on to our next guest is our recurring guest which is warren spencer warren is managing director of blackhurst bud solicitors and i sat down with warren earlier and we talked about the fire safety order and also his responsibilities with assistant living here's what warren had to say earlier today Morning, Warren. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, Mark. Just uh, things starting to get slowly back to normal, I think. Yeah, we've just reopened our office for those people that don't think that they can do their work properly from home. So we've had to take a number of steps as well. So it's a new norm, isn't it, Warren, for now? It's it's all change. It is all change. It's very difficult to plan for and very difficult to predict what's going to happen in the future as far as supply, demand, etc. So what we do in this segment, for those of you that aren't familiar, is we try and get some legal clarification, legal advice from Warren, and Warren's prosecuted more cases under the fire safety order than anybody else, as I said before. And we were talking off air about what area that we should potentially focus on this week, and Warren suggested we touch on Article 5.4 of the fire safety order. And this, this touches on contracts and to do with tenancy, renting of premises, who's responsible in terms of risk assessment. So I can't do as good a justice as, as Warren can here, but... Well, when we, when we focus on Article 5.4 of the FSO, Warren, can you give a little bit of clarity of who is liable in terms of risk assessment if it goes wrong and, and there needs to be enforcement action? Who, who would you say is liable? Is it as easy as to interpret as that? Well, first of all, I think you need to start at the beginning. So the responsible person is Article 3 and is ultimately responsible for fire risk management responsibilities in respect of premises. Article 5.3 talks about other people having fire risk management responsibilities so far as their control it extends as far as the premises are concerned. And that is explained in Article 5.4 and, and given some definition. So the liability arises under Article 5.3. A person can be control, can be liable for premises so far as their control extends. And then their control is outlined in Article 5.4, which talks about where there is a contract or a tenancy in respect of premises. Um, then a person can be liable for the fire risk management responsibilities so far as their obligations so extend and 
their obligations are obviously outlined within a contract or tenancy. The problem is that a lot of legal documents, a lot of legal tenancies and precedents for tenancies and contracts just don't deal with fire risk management responsibilities. And if they do, they don't deal with the obligations in the way that the fire safety order requires. So Warren, one area that's obviously topical at the moment is, is the care sector. What about supporting living premises? What about those responsibilities there? Well, that's a perfect example of where real clarity is needed within contractual relationships outlined in documents such as uh, care provision and uh, housing provision. So that's an, an example where you might have a number of parties with some responsibilities. So there might be a housing provider, there might be a care provider, and there might be a housing owner, um, all of which have some input into an aspect of fire safety management with regard to vulnerable people. And where the complication arises there is, is that they've got to, those obligations have got to be outlined between the parties so that the parties can own those, pro- those responsibilities. And that's a complicated area. And it's one of the areas that people get confused about as to who might be liable. If I get asked the question, well, who is liable in this situation? My answer is usually, well, what do your contracts say? What do your management agreements say? Your care agreements, service level agreements, what do they say about who is responsible for fire risk management? And very often the answer to that is they don't mention fire risk management in those contracts. Now, another aspect that we probably need to touch on here is all to do with is rental agreements, etc. What, what about the involvement of management agents? What's their role and responsibility and liability in this? Well, I had a prosecution in December where this was a this was an issue where there was a, an owner who lived in London. There were premises in Liverpool, and there was a fire in the premises with I think six residents in an HMO, and there was a managing agent. Post-fire, an inspection takes place, find a number of breaches. Who's responsible for those breaches? There was a, an agreement in place, a management agreement, which was two pages long, the first page of which dealt with names and addresses. The second contained one small paragraph in relation to the maintenance, general maintenance of the premises. Didn't mention fire risk management at all. Um, so when you have to then make a decision as to who to prosecute, because it's not clear who the management responsibilities lie with, you have to prosecute all parties. And that's what we did in that case. Um, In the end, the managing agent pleaded guilty because they accepted that they had effective day-to-day control of the premises. Had they protected themselves by saying, well, we're not responsible for the provision of a fire alarm system, for example, which is an expensive fire risk management responsibility um, and, and would benefit any landlord by having you know, a decent fire alarm system put in, then they would be protected and they say, well, no, the contract says we're not responsible for the fire alarm system um, and therefore we can't be liable under Article 13 for that particular charge. So if anybody else has any questions they'd like us to ask Warren in upcoming episodes of the podcast, it comes back every edition of the podcast. You can use the hashtag FSM podcast, do that on LinkedIn or Twitter. But in the meantime, Warren, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how can they do so? Easily accessible through LinkedIn. Uh, I also have the Blackhurst Board website, uh, blackhurstboard.co.uk, and the Fire Safety Law website, firesafetylaw.co.uk, and I'm also on Twitter.
podcast, we also interviewed Nigel Ward. Nigel is the technical support specialist at Fire Detection Solutions developer FFE, where he has now worked for just shy of a decade. Mark caught up with Nigel to focus on the latest thinking in relation to beam detection systems. Morning, Nigel. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Mark. Um, nice to speak to you today. Yeah, obviously we've done some stuff together recently, haven't we? We did a, a webinar just a couple of weeks back, which was um, protecting large premises from fires. Just for those that didn't hear it or see it in the past, you can watch that on demand now by going to the FSM website, which is fsmatters.com, and you get one CPD hour if you rewatch it. But, but Nigel, could you just quickly tell us what you covered on that webinar? Well, basically, what we what we did, Mark, was uh, we covered um, how to get the best out of a beam in a large open area, but typically it would be a warehouse. It was basically the do's and don'ts of how to install a beam. So most important things being that you use solid surfaces, that you have um, the correct line of sight, that even uh, that, the, that the beam is suitable for the premises because if it's very dusty or very dirty it may be that even though you could install a beam physically it might not be the right technology so that's the sort of things we covered basically it was um, pros and cons of uh, beams uh, in open areas. Well beam detection is just part of what FFE do can you tell us about some of the products including beam products that have come out in the last few months what's been the latest releases from FFE? Well, uh, FFE made quite a wide range of products at the moment. Uh, the two main things that we're known for is uh, uh, optical beam smoke detectors and flame detectors. Um, at the moment, we're working on a suite of um, new uh, beams. So we're going to replace every beam that we've currently got with a new one. So at the moment, the first beam that's came out is the uh, Fire A1. That is replacing our 5000R range, which has been about for about 15 years, 15 to 20 years, I'd say. Um, the, uh, we will be replacing the 3000, the 3000 EXD and the 5000 with new beams, hopefully later on this year. That's uh, that's our main um, focus at the moment, getting all the, all the uh, beams replaced and up and running. And then we'll be doing analogue addressable versions of all these beams as well. So flame and beam detection, you know, I'm familiar with your product ranges, particularly installed and used in large premises like warehousing, etc. But for those of our listeners and readers of FSM that aren't familiar with FFE, you know, many of them are fire safety managers of warehouses or could be for tall buildings. Can you give us a couple of big projects, examples of big projects and premises types that these systems are best used for? Well, it's we've done we've done loads of big uh, projects just recently. I mean, we we um, uh, we've got flame detection in Marshall Aerospace, for example. We're doing um, lots of uh, waste recycling centres, um, Amazon distribution centres, Asda distribution centres, that sort of thing. But we also um, have a little niche in historic buildings. There's um, um, the National Trust, uh, they've got a site in the West Country um, where they're looking to put beams in. It's, a, it's an old building that they're restoring and they want to put beams in the roof area, which is sort of like awkward for maybe point detection to go in or aspirating. They don't want to put um, holes in the roof or uh, maybe fit pipe work. So they're going to try and recess the beams into uh, into the walls to try and make them discreet. So lots of uh, lots of good um, and interesting projects going on at the moment. 
So obviously installers form a large part of our audience as well. Is there anything that if you if you were to get in front of installers like, like you are now, what would you like to say to educate them on your products? What are the common things that installers ask you or need to know about FFE products? The first thing, so I think these, this was covered in the in the uh, the talk that we did uh, last week, is choosing the right products. Um, with beams, there's two different technologies, reflective and end-to-end. Now, the reflective types are by far the most common because they're easier to install. You only need cabling at one end of the building versus the end-to-end you need two. You can put a reflector of the reflective beam uh, on a wall and you don't really need to get back to it again. So in theory, you could put that somewhere awkward. Once you've installed it, that's it. But the thing that the installer needs to take into consideration is the line of sight. Quite often in um, uh, the sort of typical sites that we might put them in, um, you might not have a clear roof space going from end to end of the building. And the longer the beams run, the more important it is that you get a metre diameter clearance on a reflective beam. So if you can't get that, the end to end beam with a much narrower line of sight, which can be down to 300 mil, um, that's the thing that you might need to choose. With flame detection, there's quite a, <laughs> a blue, a, 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 a wide variety of them. It can be a little bit intimidating, but they've all got their own little niche areas. Um, the UVIR2 can be used outside, but not in dirty areas. IR2 and IR3 can be used in dirty areas, but they shouldn't be used outside. The, the choice between the IR2 and IR3 would be primarily um, speed of detection. IR2 is faster because it has less sensors. The trade-off for that may be more false alarm so if that was your concern you might want to go for an ir3 so it's education really of what is the best technology if you choose the right one whether it's a flame detector or a beam hopefully it means that the um, install goes really well you get no problems with the site and then you'll want to use them again um that's that's the primarily prime primary um thing that i would uh, try and get across to people looking to what's next for ffe What's next in the product pipeline for FFE? What's the next innovation that you're working on? Right, that's that's a very good question, Mark. Um, if anyone visited us at uh, Firex last year, we did have an innovation room. And one of the things that, um, or I should say the biggest issue in our industry is false alarms, purely because of the call-outs to the fire brigade, lost, lost working time if you have to evacuate a building. So what we're looking to do at the moment on all our ranges, this will be not on the current range of beams, but when they have a midlife upgrade and then the new flame detectors that we're working on, they will have a camera in, uh, built into them. So it's almost going to be like a dash cam. That's probably the easiest way of describing it. So it's constantly recording. If that device gives a uh, an activation, whether it's a fire or fault, the engineer will be able to download the um, the last fifteen seconds before the activation, and then anything up to fifteen minutes afterwards, so they can look and see what caused the activation. So, for example, in warehouses, the typical false alarm might be a box being put in front of the beam. So, if the engineer is called to site, can look at the um, the uh, 
recording and see that there was a, um, a box put in front of the detector and it was taken away, then they can say to the client, look, you need to um, uh, educate your uh, people on, you know, not putting boxes in of this size in front of the beam. It could be that it was someone mucking about, for example, just waving their hand in front of it and set it off if it was in a school, for argument's sake. It could be some atmospheric phenomena that caused the problem. So it would build up confidence in the products and it would also help the clients understand that, you know, these things aren't going wrong because, you know, they're not very good. It's because there's a reason why they went off. And it helps the engineers um, as well know that they the uh, devices aren't false alarming for that all going into fault for no very good reason. Um, that would also, this information would also be available to them at home. So they might not even have to go to the site to review it. They can look at it in their, on their phone or in, in their office and say, okay, yeah, we can, we don't need to go to this one site because we can talk to the client and say, look, that was a false activation for this reason. And um, so hopefully that's going to be a really good um, uh, selling point for people. Well, it sounds like a fantastic innovation. Most people know that any business that suffers a major fire, you know, I think it's two thirds don't ever reopen. It's, you know, yeah. lost fires, it just kills businesses. And the reliability of fire detection systems is imperative. False alarms is a huge issue. And of course, is now enforceable action can happen from the fire registers. They keep going out to false alarms. So this sounds like a, a really great step in the right direction. So my, my final question for you, Nigel, is if people want to find out more about FFE, how can they get in touch with you? How can they find out more? Um, the best thing to do, Mark, is to visit our website, which is ffeuk.com, or you can contact myself via technical at ffeuk.com. And anyone who's got any questions, um, please ask away, and I'll be happy to answer them as best as I can. And you certainly got a lot of questions during your webinar the other week. And just as a reminder to people, that webinar that Nigel did with us is available on our website. It's Protecting Large Premises from Fires, and it talks about the do's and the don'ts of beam detection. And you go to fsmatters.com and just click on the webinar tab, and you can see it there. Nigel, thanks for joining us again today. It's always great to speak to you. Thank you, Mark. It's good to see you again. Take care, mate. this latest edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. You can read more on the issues raised here and others by visiting the Fire Safety Matters website at www.fsmatters.com. We do hope you've enjoyed the content and found it useful. On that note, please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore in upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMpodcast. Do make sure you follow us on Twitter at fsmatters underscore mag. As a reminder, the Fire Safety Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. On the next episode, we'll be talking to Peter Aldridge of the National Association of Healthcare Fire Officers and also Craig Halford, the Managing Director at Fire Suppression Systems Specialist, Jack Tone. We'll see you then. Music.